This is the best podcast on the planet. I'm not being biased at all. Thanks for listening, supporting, sharing, and subscribing to the Mindful Farm D podcast. Subscribe today wherever you listen to stay informed. Share with a few friends. Email Dr. Matman Harrell at themindfulfarmd at gmail.com exclamation point. Connect on Instagram at themindfulfarmd. Check out drmattmanharrell.bio.link for everything about the podcast. A thousand thanks and stay mindful. It's 1917. Staring up at the rustic building and dormitories of higher education stands a young black student trying to decide whether or not to pursue a degree in psychology. He writes a letter to the Dean of Clark College expressing the reasons why this decision in particular was so difficult. You see, this student was told by his community that there was not a need for black psychologists, a notion he fundamentally disagreed with. James P. Porter, Dean of Clark College, responded with the following words. I thoroughly believe that if you make of your study of psychology a practical matter, you can be of greatest service to your own people. This need not be confined to teaching for the reason that many opportunities are more and more in evidence in which the knowledge of psychology may be turned to practical account for those in whom you may be interested End quote. Later in life, this student would be known as the father of black psychology. The late Robbie Zacharias once said, you will never lighten any load until you feel the burden in your own soul. On this special Black History Month episode of the Mindful Farm D, we'll explore the lives and contributions of a few black pioneers in the field of psychology and social work. Some of their stories are known while others lie away in obscurity. In both instances though, their contributions to the field continue to impact our lives and our understanding of the mind. You're listening to the Mindful Farm D podcast. Welcome and a thousand thanks for tuning in. This podcast is about all of us. I'm your host and the mind behind the microphone, Mattman Harrell. My focus on this podcast is to explore the mind through genuine conversations, thought provoking ideas, and the reality that the story of mental health is incomplete. Welcome and a thousand thanks. I uh, appreciate you all listening to the Mindful Farm D. I am the mind behind the microphone, Matt Harrell, and I look forward to talking with you all today. I have some very special guests here with me. Uh, I'm going to introduce them here. My, my, the first one is uh, actually what, how my friend would say, my mother in love. Uh, she's the mother of my wife. 
and a recent grad with a master's degree in social work. And when she's not working in the public, she she gladly uses her skills and natural desire to help others by helping the family through loss, struggle and various life changes. Uh, Currently, though, her focus is on a new baby boy. Uh, my nephew, Jace, who brings joy to each and every one of our lives. So, Mill, Mill, thank you very much for speaking with me today. <laughs> um, my next guest is Akima. I'll introduce her. Akima Young, a student and mental health advocate. She's vocal about her personal experience uh, with mental health, and uh, she participated in parity training with, George, with the Georgia chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. And even more recently, she helped in the Georgia Senate campaign of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Akima, thank you for speaking with me today. Absolutely. I'm so excited. So excited. So glad to have you all on. So today, you know, I've, we've been sort of going back and forth and uh, talking about the prep for this episode. And, you know, today, really, what I, what I want to do is talk about the black brilliance. And what I mean by black brilliance is this this um, I, I want to talk about the contributions that many or few, I should say, a few black Americans made within the realm of mental health. And what we'll do is we, we really hand selected three uh, notable figures in history. Uh, obviously, we couldn't cover it all in a you know, 45 minute or so episode. But, you know, that that's the beautiful thing about podcasting. You can always come back and shore it up and do you know, next, next, next month, or even next year, next black history month, do some more and talk about some more uh, notable figures in history. So, uh, but the three that we selected today, you'll see that a few of their stories sort of intermingle, uh, and they've made some great strides and great contributions to mental health and what we know, uh, about how the mind works, what we know about different struggles within the black community. And, you know, if I could sort of give, the audience here, just three reasons why, why I want to talk about this today. Number one, I think it's a great opportunity to highlight the contributions that these African-Americans have made in the mental health field. Number two, I think it speaks to the fact that mental health was and continues to be an important topic in African-American communities. And right now, when we talk about data that says, you know, black and African-American people living below the poverty, poverty line are twice as likely to report serious psychological distress than those living over two times the poverty level. We talk about stats and the fact that adults and blacks and Af- uh, blacks and African Americans are more likely to have feelings of sadness, hopelessness, and worthlessness than adult whites. Blacks are less likely than white people to die from suicide at all ages. All of these statistics that really speak to an, an issue um, that is unique. It's it's culturally unique. Uh, I think blacks have different psychological uh, barriers and different psychological struggles that we have to overcome. Um, But again, it also speaks to this whole idea that mental health, that this, you know, really this whole idea that this podcast is built on is that mental health affects each and every one of us. And if there's any chance that we could become more aware of, of our, our brother's struggle uh, with mental health or their experience, you know, existing in the world as a human being, then, you know, we may we may get closer and closer to uh, uh, having that or appreciating those shared experiences um, and making changes where they need to be made. Number three, I think it's important that these conversations are had so that they encourage the next generation of black psychologists, black counselors 
and neurobiologists to continue advancing our understanding of the mind and how mental health affects all of us. But I, I want to turn to to uh, Akeem. I want to ask you, do you you know, why do you feel this topic is uh, important to talk about today? I think it's important because a lot, a lot of the reasons you highlighted, you know, when you talk about the fact that people who live below the poverty line are at a higher percentage of, you know, committing suicide and having issues, mental health issues. And I think it's important and it's good that we have that data so that we can actually do something about it. Mm. We don't take it for granted that it's like, okay, this is just a problem. We don't know what it's linked to. We don't know, you know, so... I think conversations like this allow us to really connect A to B and say, you know what, the reason why this is a problem is because of this. Mm. And highlighting some of the contributions that you know African Americans have made really give us a chance to figure out a way forward. You know, it's all about solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I think conversations like this help create solutions. Absolutely. Mill, what about you? Why do you, why do you feel this, this topic is important for us to talk about today? because once I think when a person realizes that they have some issues going on it takes forever for them to come out and say that this is what's going on it can go under the radar so easily and so the more we talk about it the more we put out and I came up with an acronym stigma and so we know that there's a stigma to going with um, African Americans and mental health and for stigma I put S for secret Mm. It's always kept a secret, you know, and I could go deeply into that, but we know what a secret is and um, how it can eat you up and, and actually turn your mental health against you. It's going to be a negative thing. Um, T for tangible. For me, mental health is tangible. I can actually feel what some of the people are feeling, especially I realized this when I worked my internship in a mental health institution in um, South Florida, and I could feel what the people are feeling. And Kimi and I, Kimi and I, we've talked about this, how you feel other people, other things going on with people. And um, the I is for innate. Something, the person that I'm going to speak about tonight, something that she said is that when you, um, when you don't take care of the whole problem, the problem comes back, right? And so it becomes innate after a while, generation and generate the next generation and next generation and becomes innate. You start, you go up like that, you think that's you and, and not realizing you have a mental health issue. And then the G for graphic, it's just so graphic sometimes what some mm. people with mental health issues um, go through. It, it actually contorts them, their face, their body, their lifestyle. Everything just changes. It's very graphic. You see it, you know. And then the M, I want to end with something positive because it's all so negative. Mm. Um, it's manageable. Mm. It's manageable. You can get help and this can, this can be managed. Either starting off with medicine to get you leveled out to a certain point where you are able to... Um, ascertain the tools that you need to actually function without medicine after you taper it off. And then the last um, stigma, part of stigma is A, is achievable. So when you can manage it, you've achieved what you wanted to get from it. So um, yeah. that's my reason that this conversation is so important. Yeah, well, I, I think that's wonderful. You know, somebody else uh, that I follow 
loves to use um, acronyms to sort of explain uh, our interactions with our mind. Uh, and that's Dr. Dan Siegel. If you ever get a chance to read any of his work, he loves using um, acronyms. I won't give you any right now, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, you know, maybe future in future episodes we'll kind well, of unpack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that. I think that I think that's great. And maybe um, you know, I'll put that in the show notes too. If you could send that to me, what those okay. different things stand for, I think that's powerful. Um, okay. I, you know, I, I want to go back to something that was mentioned earlier, and you know, when we talk about the, the, the seriousness and the, you know, the secrecy that comes with mental health, I find it interesting that the, um, mental health America websites, a national website, they, they reported that between 2008 and 2018, and those dates are important. I'll bring it back to you, uh, on why they're important, but between 2008 and 2018, uh, serious mental illness rose among all black and African-American people. Uh, between that time period. Now, we know Barack Obama was president, became president in 2008. And so I find it interesting, you know, he served two terms. I find it interesting that even in a country who who has uh, a president, a minority president representing the free world, um, you know, we sort of see this this rise in serious mental illness. Now, that being said, of course, there are a number of factors that probably went into that. Maybe there was more uh, effort made into identifying, mm-hmm. you know, um, identifying, uh, those, those secret places where they've, they've gone under, uh, underreported or unreported for mm-hmm. so long. Um, you know, so what, what work, you know, might've been done between that time period. I think it'd be interesting research for me anyway, cause I love that. I love that sort of historical data, historical data, um, that gives us a, a, a glimpse into what was happening and what was going on. But, I, I just found that interesting. You know, how, how, what do you guys think about that? I don't know how that, how that data, if that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, I totally agree with you on, on one aspect on everything, but I want to speak to one aspect of it while you were saying the 2008, I said, Oh my gosh, 10 years. Yeah. It rose so fast, but it, I don't think it actually rose so fast as fast. I think mental health has always been around. It was the light was shed on it and let people know that just like I was saying with stigma that, you know, stigma. And so with more people, with the stigma being lifted, more people came forward and got help yeah. or it was recorded. You know, gotcha. because I'm Jamaican, so coming from an island like way in Jamaica, in the country, we, we hardly went to the doctor. So with mental health issues, oh, going way back when, when would they have gone to the doctor? Mm. You know? Yeah. 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 But we, um, so let, let's, let's get into our topic and talk about a few of these uh, individuals and, um, who really paved the way and who really, uh, you know, again, brought light and shed light on some of the issues that black Americans have had to deal with, um, in this country in terms of mental health. Um, so like I said earlier, we've sort of hand-selected these individuals that we'll talk about. But again, we we won't cover their whole life story. We just don't have the time to. Uh, we'll save that for another episode. Um, and we we won't talk about everybody. There are other people. You might be listening to this and saying, well, what about so-and-so? What about this person? What about that person? You know, I, 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 I'm glad that you're thinking about them, um, you know, but at the end of the day, we, we weren't able to cover everybody and can't. can't cover everybody 
Um, the first person that I want to talk about is Francis Cecil Sumner. And as we're as we're going through some of these stories, you know, you guys feel free chime in. Um, if something sticks out that you want to comment on, just just dive right in there. Um, okay. But Francis Cecil Sumner, he's important because he's considered to be the father of black psychology. Uh, and in fact, Kenneth Clark, one of the other people that that we'll talk about today was one of his students. Uh, Francis Sumner was the first African-American to receive his Ph.D. in psychology in 1920 at the ripe old age of 24. So for any <laughs> any uh, adolescent out there, teenager listening, look, you can you can accomplish goals. This this man was the first to receive a Ph.D. in psychology in 1920 uh, in a world where it was unheard of for for African-Americans to really and truly benefit from higher education and you know, Francis Sumner made that his life's work to sort of change that dynamic. He was described as a low key, humble individual, yet his writing suggested an intense level of self-awareness and awareness of the conditions of the black experience in America. Uh, his writings were controversial as well among both whites and blacks. He echoed ideas of Booker T. Washington, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who interestingly, Booker T. Washington and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois were um, were rivals, but you know they believed, and he believed, Francis Sumner believed that higher the higher educational system, including colleges and universities, needed to focus on the unique culture and perspective of blacks in America. Uh, he, as he began his career, and and again I mentioned earlier, you know. PhD at the age of 24, he wrote a letter um, to Dean Porter, who was the uh, the dean of the Clark College. And so prior to, you know, formally pursuing a degree in psychology, he sent this letter to, to Dean Porter. And it says I wanted to read it because it says psychology appears to be the most vital subject in which I would specialize. Many have tried to discourage me from that subject saying that it was not much in demand among colored people. However, I seem to see a great latent demand for it. So, you know, even today, this statement holds true. Sumner recognizing in 1920, man, they're so, you know, I, I'm so drawn to this field of psychology. I'm so drawn to this, this um, aspect of human existence and human life, specifically in the colored person. But there are those who who dissuade me from from pursuing this degree. There's those who persuade me from uh, from accomplishing this goal because they don't feel that it's important. But, man, it, it, it was important. As I said earlier, it was important and it is still important. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. you know, and so his life, his life and his life work continued to walk through that and, and sort of unpack um, some of those um, things and. Uh, and ways that higher education can improve. So let me let me talk a little bit about his career and his timeline. Then I'll talk about his uh, some of his notable contributions. So is this where we can jump in? Anytime, anytime I'm talking, just go ahead and dive in. All right. So because we have COVID-19 going on, so many people have to be isolated. We have a lot of people that live alone. You know, people do live alone. They They have great lives, but they live alone. So being isolated exacerbates can exacerbate mental health oh yeah so just as important as it was in 1924 it is what 
hundred times more magnified yeah. now absolutely. that we're sitting in this in this moment in time. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, he identified that and I think others others today, again, you mentioned it earlier, I, I think we're waking up to this idea that, hey, this is not just a whites only issue. Um, this is not just a Hispanic only issue. You know, this is this is a black issue and um, it's an American issue. It's a human issue. Again, we all struggle with these with these these experiences and for different reasons. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Kenneth Clark, we'll talk about him. Um, he him and his wife, he, they highlighted some of those specific things. Uh, but I'm not going to get too far ahead of that because I want Akima to unpack that a little bit. I'm excited about that that segment. But, you know, again, Sumner saw this and he recognized this. And so in 1920. Clark University, got his PhD, uh, and from there he went on to Wilberforce University, and um, he then went in 1921, went to and and taught at the West Virginia Collegiate Institute, um, and then from there he ended up he stayed there for about eight years, and then he went on to Howard University. But in in between all that and that movement that he that occurred. He he does some he did some very uh, interesting things. So, you know, first of all, his dissertation was on the psychoanalysis of Freud and Adler. And if you know anything about these guys, again, they're they're pioneers in their own right. But what's that? Yes. Very bold. Right. The psychoanalysis of Freud and Adler. So, you know, these these guys were, again, pioneers in their own right. But, you know, and they, we write about them today. They came from the honestly from a white male perspective. Um, you know, there wasn't really much in the way of understanding, uh, you know, women's issues, um, again, or even black issues and black culture. And so, you know, and I, I, to be honest, I haven't had the opportunity to read that dissertation if it's even available online, but boy, I would love to get my hands on it and read through it to really see how he, (laughs) how he psychoanalyzed the psychoanalysts, you know, Freud and Adler. Um, but you know, Freud, uh, not Freud, um, Sumner went on to, to then World War One, um, right before actually, right before he was able to begin his dissertation uh, coursework, he had he went and he he participated in the army and fought in World War One. So he's a he's a veteran. Um, but then after World War One, or yep, or after coming out of the war, he re-enrolled and finished his dissertation. Um, in 1921, he accepted the position of chair of psychology and philosophy departments again at West Virginia Collegiate Institute. And then he went on to to become the chair of psychology at the Howard University uh, Department of Psychology. During his tenure there, Howard was known as the Black Harvard. I thought that was pretty cool, um, you know, because of his leadership and because of his focus and bringing uh, bringing notable figures on board to help, um, you know, create this the, these discussions around black psychology. Uh, Howard was known as the Black Howard or Black Harvard. And uh, he published more than 45 articles, no, more than 45 articles before the age of 25. OK, so he again, he graduated 24 and within, you know, between not 25. I'm sorry. Before the age of 30, he, he had published more than 45 articles. Um, and that's important because there were no funds for his research because he was a black man talking about psychology in the black community. He he didn't get the funding that he needed for his research. And so that's that's a you know, that's an accomplishment in and of itself to be able to to write and publish and have these newspapers and these these um, psychology journals 
accept your 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 articles, um, you know, in this time period, uh, you know. But in his articles, he focused on perception, he focused on advertising, and he focused on the psychology of religion, uh, and he also focused on how to refute racism and bias. He proposed strategies on how to improve higher education among blacks, again, based on our unique culture and our unique psychology. But a story wouldn't be complete without a bump in the road, right? Without a bump in the road. And we find that in 1918, this is right when he was becoming, uh, you know, or right when he became accepted at Clark University, he wrote two articles. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these two articles briefly, but he wrote two articles that, that were very controversial and almost caused him to be dismissed from the university. The first article, he addressed the small scale uh, political representation of blacks in America, despite the fact that many black communities pay taxes. You know, basically, you know, taxation without representation is what he was what he was defending. Uh, but he specifically calls out the fact that especially in the South, these taxes are being paid without any representation or improvement in the education of blacks. And in in the letter, he writes, uh, I have to read this because in the letter, he writes in sections of the country at times, mob law is the supreme representative of federal government mob law. It is in, it is indeed a shocking wonder that some compassionate and benevolent, sorry, benevolent white citizen has not founded a society for the prevention of cruelty to Negroes. Basically saying with everything that's happening in the black community, it's no wonder that somebody else on the outside of this community, you know, basically would come and act as savior and basically uh, create a space to where we can change this dynamic, you know? And those comments, man, they ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, And then to add to it, he says at the end of the, of the article, Within the soul of each member of my race, the conscious self is saying, serve your country. While the unconscious from out of the depths of its thundering, you have a poor cause to serve. Serve your country, but then you have a poor cause to serve. I think that those words are, are powerful because they speak to the, the duality, right? We experience that here today. Would you guys agree? I was just about yeah. to say, yeah. it's so relevant today. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so interesting. I was actually just gonna say that today, my sister actually just got her citizenship here, uh, you know, in the U.S. Coming from Jamaica, being born in Jamaica, and she made a post about how she's like, you know, although this country has so many problems, I'm still really proud to be here. Mm. Like that's the first thing that um, I thought when you were saying that. But I think as Black people here, there's such a split in our consciousness about like we understand that there's so much to be grateful for but at the same time it's kind of like there's so many things that this country was founded on that just have damaged us damaged the soul of the black man the black woman in america yeah. and it's like there's there's so much tension so that that's that's a great point yeah it, that's it, a great point it, it's basically create in psychology they, they they basically call it like a double bind right you mm. you're you're darned if you do darned if you don't sort of attitude sort of mentality and yeah. You know, you, you want to, <clears throat> back in this time, especially, you know, you want to be out there. You want to support your country. You want to fight alongside your your, your your white counterparts and and have this hoorah and, and say, yeah, you know, America the brave, America the free. But then there's this part of you on the inside that's like, but wait a second. There's no, 
There's no space for me here. There's mm -hmm. no space for my culture here. Mm -hmm. You know? I think I think what's what can help end stigma and really break these conversations down to where people can understand how, you know, a simple sadness or the loss of somebody or something simple can turn into mental illness. Because as you just said, like, um, there's no space for me here. Like, I want to feel good about it, but there's no space for me. I think it's in this, it's kind of like being in a, in a relationship with somebody. It's like, mm. if somebody does something wrong to you, you know, I still love you. I still want to be with you. But if there's no accountability, if you don't change that love that I have for you, you know, there, it's, it's, it's fighting for space with the error that was was done mm. so it's kind of like that's what america has always grappled with is like all the errors all of the things that have been done to black people there's never been true um rectification mm. yeah and yeah. so black people <clears throat> black people don't feel valued here you know and it's like it, it really does make you wonder you know what what it will take for us to get to that place of of, of inner clarity you know about where we stand in this, in this country. Right. So, yeah. And they, yeah. He, he calls it out. And you know, if we, if we thought this letter rustled some feathers, the second one that he wrote again in 1918, this was the one that nearly cost him his educational career. Uh, again, we're talking about these two articles that right when Sumner, Francis Sumner, you know, was accepted into Clark university right out the gate, he's fighting for his cause. And at this time in 1918, this was around the time World War, World War I was ending. And we know America was, an out, was you know, really outspoken about being against everything that Germany stood for. You know, some, so Sumner, though, this, this young man who fought in World, World War I, he blasts America for basically being hypocritical and pointing the finger at Germany and saying, you know, you should not do this and you shouldn't do this and do that to your people. And yet Ameri in America... We were doing the same thing or similar things to black Americans. And so he, he suggested in this in this second article that, you know, the popular view in America that Germany was a barbaric, immoral and irreligious society represented the use, represented the use of projection as a means of defense against the guilt. So he's, he's saying as he's writing this article, he's saying to them. You know, we're in America, we're blasting Germany. We're saying all these cruel things about Germany, that Germany's cruel, Germany's immoral. But really what it is, it's a, it's a projection of our deep-seated, as a country, our own deep-seated faults, our own deep-seated yeah. hatred toward our own brethren, you know? And, yeah. you know, he writes, um, he, you know, he attempted to explain that America's racial hatred by quoting one Dr. William Steckel. So Sumner quotes Dr. William Steckel, who was also a psychoanalyst. Steckel said this, we hate whole peoples because they represent a component of our ego, which has fallen to repression. In other words, saying again, when we when we speak ill of others, when we speak ill, and just again, within the context of Americans, American culture, when we speak ill of other other countries and the wrongs that they're doing, we have to really take the mirror to ourselves and say, well, are we are we representing the evils that we're speaking against where, where do these evils that we're against for other countries, where do they exist within our own country? And I think that, I mean, that, that to me, when I'm, when I'm researching this and I'm reading this, I'm like, man, that has so many ramifications because not only on the cultural or the national perspective, 
we ourselves have to ask ourselves individually that same question. I'm talking, you know, I'm saying that this person is that and this person is this and that and the other. But then we have to hold up the mirror to ourselves and say, well, am I those same things? You know, what do you guys think about that? Because I have a lot of that stuff in this from from the person that I'm going to highlight. Yeah, these, these two articles were were again nearly the the nearly cost Francis his attendance. And you know, when you do the research, you find out that he went through this whole process to to really rectify. He issued an apology, not apologizing for his words, but an apology that you know that maybe he uh, people thought that he was trying to blast America. But really what he was trying to do was help us to look internally as a country and say, again, if you're if you're speaking against these wiles, speaking against these evils toward other countries, we need to take a deep seat and look at ourselves um, and see that we're not projecting and doing the same things. But some of Francis's and I'm wrapping up Francis Sumner, but some of his fundamental ideas and some of these are controversial, but I'm going to go through them. Um, first of all, American education in the 1800s and 1900s neglected the cultural infancy of blacks in America and Francis Sumner and others, you know, I'll just read a quote. He said, education of the Negro fails of its fundamental purpose, which neglects the fact that the Negro as a people is on a lower cultural level than the white race. So according to Sumner, the appropriate strategy would be to provide an education that would have its primary purpose as being the gradual elevation of the race through the fundamental stages of cultural evolution. So as you bring the, the culture up, as you foster the culture, the deep-seated culture that, Ameri- that black Americans had and, and still have today, only then can you truly educate them on their terms. Does that make sense, what he's saying? You know? Um, one way that he, that he proposed to do this was by reduction. I think at the time there were some, um, you know, of course, education as a whole in the country is segregated. And there were some um, black colleges and universities. They weren't HBCUs yet, but they, you know, they would be. I think FAMU, my alma mater, was founded in 1887. Um, but, you know, Francis's ideas were that with all of these black colleges around, we sort of need to reduce them as a way to improve edu- educational resources in the black colleges. So instead of having, you know, 50 or 100 black colleges, let's dwindle it down to 25. Why? So that more resources, resources can be pulled to, to build up the next generation of black leaders, you know, and black, black peoples. Um, he also talked about liberal, liberalizing education. And within the context of the early 1900s, you know, it, he was again, sort of in a, in a rock and a hard place because the liberalization of education was not necessarily suitable for blacks because of the cultural differences between majority and minority groups. And what liberalizing, liberalizing education means was basically getting rid of segregation, f- forging the two, the two um, uh, races together. So no more are we segregated, but let's integrate now. Okay. So on the, on the one side of the mind, he's saying, let's integrate, let's get rid of segregation. But on the other side, he's saying, well, wait a second. Right now, if we did that, our culture, the American culture does not uh, award, award us to be able to do that because, again, the majority of teachers and professors in that day were white. They're going to our black students are going to miss out, yeah. you know, 
on that on that uh, on the culture that they possess because yes. the white professors they can't connect with you on that level. Right. They can't right. connect with you with your culture. So he saw even then he saw the value of integration, right? And which we'll talk about with um with Clark. He saw the value of integration, but it, it wasn't it was also not the time for it. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's um that's such a great point. I know we're we're getting ready to go into um the, the next the, the next people we're highlighting. But when you talk about integration and not and it not being the right time, I remember when I was living in North Carolina, I think I met somebody who, you know, was had been there for a really long time. And they were telling me about how it was like a coalition of people who were against integrating schools of black people when it first happened because they realized that they were what they were doing was trying to just like go along to get along. It wasn't coming from a place of mm. it was like a it was like a me too, like we want to be included, like recognize us as equals. And I think that's where we I think that's why we why we are where we are today is this mentality that we've had that we need to get approval from white people. Mm. And we need to be we we need to like be equal to them as opposed to having a really deep seated sense of feeling good enough as a people. Right. Our own culture, acknowledging and appreciating our own culture. It's not about being necessarily equal. It's about, it's about having your own, having your own and being proud of your differences, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can, we can exist together on that plane. You know, I, I think that there is space and opportunity for us to exist together uh, with those ideas in mind. You don't have to forsake your blackness, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. just to sort of fit in or to be equal. You can yeah. have your culture and eat it too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say so um, good. I, that's good. I want to say that when I was um, living in Florida, I became I, I was I was. I was angered by something that happened in the school system. I was always angered by the school system. <laughs> but this one thing really just took me out of myself into the superintendent's office and all this stuff. And so in doing that, my name got around the community as the person to advocate for others, right? So I was advocating for all kinds of people with the school system and their kids. And I ended up being... Um, the president of an organization called Parents Involved in Education, PAC. We want a piece of the pie. Mm. Right? <laughs> and, I love pie. Um, and the late huh? I said, I love pie. Pie. You <laughs> just said, have your cake and eat it too. Right. Anyway, <laughs> anyway um, so the the lady that, that started this program, she started it under a tree in the park, in the park in, in Gifford, which is uh, a black community in um, South Florida. The, the space coast of, of the east coast of Florida. And so I'm thinking I was there, so I wasn't gonna explain that, but I needed to say that. So um so she she wanted me to do that and what she she oh my gosh, she believed this with her heart. She's a elderly lady now and she um she said we should have never integrated schools. Mm. I mean never and I said, Miss Annie how, what are you saying? Yeah. I never, I didn't get that. And then she explained it to me. Look at what is happening now. When we integrated the schools, they didn't integrate the staff. Mm-hmm. They integrated the kids. Right. And the kids didn't get, the children did not get what the children need to get for culture, 
for for inspiration seeing yeah. some a face like mine teaching mm-hmm. um it just they weren't taken care of the same yeah. and and still we were fighting this and to this point at some point we're still fighting in some areas of america you know so i i kind of like i kind i agreed with her but i'm thinking how how could i think we can make more strides this way by being a part of the pie part of it and getting a piece of the pie but I don't know. I'm still on the fence about that, but I think mostly I'm thinking we can make more strides this way. Yeah. But I do love her idea if it could have worked. Yeah. Well, it <clears throat> that's how it was, and and she, you know, Akima mentioned the coalition of blacks in in the again in the early 1900s and all, and after even after that period, that also agreed that we shouldn't we shouldn't integrate, we shouldn't um, wow. combine the schools, and it was because of this reason there wasn't enough representation um you know in those schools in order for blacks to really appreciate or not even appreciate but to really uh gain you know and get what they need from those experiences and so when when sumner was at you know west virginia collegiate institute for example uh he spent eight years there he taught his students to and challenged them really to address the introspective and the behavioralistic aspects of uh of black existence uh, and again, his, his whole philosophy was let's train up the black leaders today so that when the day comes that we integrate, when the day comes, um, we can have a, we can have again, that bet, that better representation uh, of our leaders in those schools. And so while at How- Howard, um, Sumner led the university to become a prominent voice and educator of black psychology. And again, he's known as the father of black psychology. And Sumner's story is so relevant today in today's um, racial climate because his research in psychology, despite the lack of funding, really helped counteract racism and eventually the segregation of schools. Uh, most notably because of one of his students, Kenneth Bancroft Clark. And Akima, I want you to kind of pick up there. Well, I think that that's actually a great I'm glad that you did that because you said Kenneth Bancroft Clark. Um, but history often gets it wrong. It was uh, Mamie Phipps Clark who kind of spearheaded the research. Mm. And their, their stories are so intertwined. It's hard to find a biography about either one of them. It's always like their lives and their, their work were so intertwined. And so um, Dr. Kenneth Clark was heavily influenced by Frances Sumner and I'm going to get deeper into it, but before I forget, because I wrote it down, um, the article that you were quoting about the, the consciousness piece, about how there's like this split, I think it's in how Kenneth Clark and Mamie Clark took that and focused it on children, what it was doing to kids, and that was the foundation of everything that they did was working with underprivileged youth and working with um, with small children. Uh, I have um, <clears throat> Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Phipps-Clark, who were a husband and wife, revolutionary social psychologists. Um, and they were both born around the early 1900s. Um, and they both attended Howard University at the same time, which is where they met. Mamie Phipps-Clark and Dr. Kenneth Clark were most notably... Um, their most notable contribution, I guess, in the grand scheme was their doll test. And this doll test helped to deliver the verdict on the Brown versus Board of Education um, case, which was the first uh, Supreme Court case 
that use social science research, which I found really interesting. Mm. Um, so that was really notable. And so for those of you who don't know, the Brown versus Board of Education uh, case basically ended school segregation. Um, and what Mamie Phipps Clark wanted to illustrate was that segregation in schools was literally creating, like we talked about, a split within black children, which made them feel inferior without them even realizing it. And so as an example, during this doll test, they would ask the kids, so they, they laid out some black dolls and they laid out some white dolls for the kids. And they asked the black kids, okay, which doll is the ugly doll? And all the kids would pick the, the black doll. Um, as the said, ugly doll. The, the black doll as yeah, the ugly doll. Yeah. The black doll is the ugly doll. And they said, which which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the the well-behaved doll? And there's all of these kind of very black and white, good or bad questions. And the black children always chose the white kids as having the more positive behavioral attributes and mm. being more desirable. And so this was research that showed that, you know, segregation of schools is literally creating a mental illness within kids to where they cannot identify themselves as being good, Yeah, you know? And wow. I think that's something that's so <laughs> under... It's It sounds like a really simple thing, but it's it's a really big deal that a kid can't see goodness in themselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because there's, you know, and one, one reason for that is probably because there's, again, there's no... There's no, there are no clear models at that time um, in the out in, you know, yeah, the, the parents might have modeled it. But what I'm saying is in the larger cultural context, there were probably no, no clear models of that, um, you know, getting notoriety, you know, for example, um, because, again, it was it was blacks in white America. It wasn't really America, you know, <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a great point because it really shows the paints the picture of the fact that America has always been divided, even though it's always claimed to be mm. the United States of America. Right. And I, once again, there's all these disparities in the way that we project ourselves and the way that we experience living here. And I think that's why mental health is on the rise. In addition to the pandemic and the different cultural things we have going on, but it's kind of like the disparities are like coming to a head, just like, after a while, you're living with somebody, you guys have beef going on. After a while, it's like, okay, we're going to have to deal with this at some point. Yeah. You know, you can only live with it for so long. The conversation continues in part two of this very special Black History Month episode series, Black Brilliance. I hope you'll come back and join us to finish the conversation. And in the meantime, would you consider sharing this podcast with somebody who could benefit like it on all of your on wherever you're listening to it, you know, hit the subscribe button so that you get the updates. Part two of this series will be released in just a few days, and I look forward to finishing this conversation. But until then, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I leave you with this 
Focus your thoughts on what is true, noble, righteous, pure, lovable, or admirable, on some virtue or on something praiseworthy. Think about these things.